0: Welcome to the Think Theism podcast. Welcome to another episode of Think Theism, the podcast from Rashaad Christie here at Texas A&M. My name is Zach. I'm joined by co-host and electric sheep veterinarian Andrew Robbins. Hello. Today we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Neil Odenart, Texas A&M class of 2001. Neil has worked on a wide range of projects in computer science and digital humanities. Some of these projects include the Special Divine Action Project, sponsored by the Templeton Foundation. Additionally, he is a founder of the Institute for Digital Christian Heritage, and most relevantly, he has served as our chapter advisor here at Ratio Christi for the past couple of years. Neil, how are you doing today? Hey guys, I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me out. I mentioned your class of 2001. Uh, you've been around here at College Station for a while. Uh, what do you do? So I've been in
1: College Station for, for quite a long time. I guess I showed up 20 years ago this year. Um, I've been working for a group most recently called the Texas Center for Applied Technology and I'm a senior software engineer and, and uh, research engineer there. I do a lot of software development. I lead some teams, do some project management work. And I've worked on everything with, with TCAT. I've worked on everything from veterinary diagnostic medicine, um, some some global One Health initiatives looking at how the health of humans and inter- animals intersect, as well as, as continuing some of my digital humanities research that I did in graduate school here.
0: I know what one of those words means, humanities. What exactly is the digital humanities? Surely you also know what
1: digital means too, but but you put them together and, yeah. it, and it sounds like like somebody's making a bad joke, I think. <laughs> uh, so digital humanities is, is really, technology has been affecting everything, and it's affected humanities research as well. The The digital humanities field is, is really interested in thinking through how we can use technology to support uh, research within the humanities field, so fields like history, archaeology, philosophy, um, textual studies. As well as – so both how do we extend the research methodologies that are available to those disciplines, as well as how do we take information within those fields and present it to people in, in new and interesting ways. And I, and I think maybe a couple of examples are, are helpful here. So, so there's there's a whole host of different projects, but, but – um, one one in particular that I that I've seen recently, there's this guy named, named Bill Ender's up at University currently at University Oklahoma University, um, who's been working to use multispectral imaging and three D data capture to digitize some some old kind of medieval gospel manuscripts. So he's really interested in looking at. Seeing the warps, warpage on the page so that you can get in and analyze these as well as using multispectral imaging so that you can get at, you know, not just the, the words that are easily visible on the page, but also the kind of the history of changes and the scribal notes and the margin that may have been damaged over time and things like that. So so there is using technology and some fairly sophisticated technology to, to support kind of traditional humanities questions. What did these old books say? Another one that we used kind of on the, on the representational side, one of the projects that I was involved with in graduate school was looking at, at Don Quixote. So Don Quixote is, is a book with, that's been republished in many different illustrated forms over the years. And so the Texas A&M University Libraries went out and acquired something on the order of, of 1,400 volumes of illustrated editions, so different, different books. With lots and lots of illustrations, scanned all those illustrations, added a bunch of markups, so, so an art historian went through and described what's significant about each of those. And now that we've got these, we uh, gosh, it's it's well over 100,000 images. You can think about new ways of presenting Don Quixote where, where maybe we can look at a particular episode and see a visual history of how people have interpreted that work. Whereas if you were thinking about maybe, maybe let's say, you, you thought Don Quixote was great and you wanted to publish a tabletop book of all the illustrations in Don Quixote, it's going to be really hard to put 100,000 images on on your coffee table. <laughs> and if we could put 100,000 images on your coffee table, you've got no hope
0: of doing anything useful with it. Uh, one of the additional projects, I, I guess this fits under the umbrella of digital humanities, is the Special Divine Action Project. Uh, I know that you've been involved with that. And um, and also as a result, you've been able to bring in Andrew Pinson a couple of times to A&M who has also been helping uh, w- with that project. Uh, so what, what's going on with that?
1: Yeah, so the Special Divine Action Project was a project that I had. I've been talking with a guy named Tim McGrew, who's a professor of philosophy up at Western Michigan University. And 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 through that, got in touch with uh, Dr. Andrew Pinson, Father Andrew Pinson at, at Oxford. And basically, the, the big question that we're ans- asking with this is, Trying to think a little bit more about the subject of, of miracles and, and more than just miracles, all forms of divine action. So grace, inspiration, miracles, and providence is kind of the four categories that, that we talk about on that project. And that's that looking at that from a from a scholarly perspective, because because for the longest time, basically the, the conversation within academic environments has been. David Hume said a long time ago that miracles weren't possible, and that's the end of the story. Well, the the story actually turns out to be a little bit more complex than that. So what I wanted to do with this this project is to take three, four hundred years of conversation, starting in in roughly the 1600s, as you begin to see this transition toward modern science and say, what does the belief that God can act in the world? How does that intersect with changing ideas as we see the rise of modern science and scientific methods? And what we've done with that project is we've gathered about 2000 digital books where the team in Michigan under the direction of Dr. Tim McGrew is working on adding editorial comments and putting some scholarly context to those books and then we've made them all accessible via via the project website at, at specialdivineaction.org and so in addition to just taking this historical material of roughly 1200 different authors 2000 or so different different volumes of material and we've also tried to set it in light of contemporary discussions on special divine action uh, in order, in order to kind of broaden the conversation so so people think about God acting in the world, and the first thing we think about is miracles, right? But he, but he also acts in other ways, right? He, he inspires artists. He pur- purportedly he inspires artists. He he could um, provide just divine providence in people's lives, right? So, so one way in which God's action in the world has been thought of is God um, directs the course of your life without you necessarily knowing where it's going, right? And we talk about these in in everyday conversations. Um, both and right, both Christians and non-Christians talk about things that look like divine action. So, just thinking about how can we make these conversations a little bit more formal and a little bit more structured. So, is all of that content currently live? So, all of the material is currently live. The team at both um, the team at Oxford, which is kind of responsible for at, updating the. Uh, contemporary content and, and kind of cataloging all the different ways people are talking about special line action as well as the team at, at Michigan that's working on the historical database, they're still working on, on the, the content for that. And, and candidly, I think they're going to be working on the content for, of that for, for quite a while now. There, there's a lot of material to go through. But the site itself is online. There's, there's a basic search engine so you can get access to these, these 2,000 different volumes, as well as kind of some starting points on the side so you can see, okay, who are the primary people, people to start working with. Um, and so there's, there's quite a bit of material that's already available on the site. There are a few wards left as as we're kind of moving toward a, a production release, probably toward the
0: end of this year. And have you read everything on the database yet? I
1: have not. Um, but but the fascinating thing is is Tim, Tim has. Uh, so so Tim McGrew, this this kind of emerged out of his real passion, and and he has he's he's read it, and he has just internalized this tremendous amount of material it's, it's it's awesome talking and interacting with these guys because because Tim Tim's a philosopher I'm a computer scientist Tim's a philosopher Tim and Andrew are philosophers and uh, Tim's specialty is kind of this this history of science in the 1600s forwards father Penson is specializes in Aristotle and Aquinas and so between the two of them you've got like 2,000 years of history in, in philosophy and and Tim in particular, will just, you know, you're having a conversation with him and, and, he, and he, like, says, okay, author, book, page number says this. And you're like, you're just, that's, that's just disgusting. <laughs> I, I have no idea how he keeps it all in his head, but he's, he's just encyclopedic in his, in his memory.
0: So basically, the Special Divine Action Project is Tim McGrew's brain, but on the internet.
1: <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. And right, and 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 I won't I won't I won't belabor this, but the, there are actually some interesting um, there's some interesting scholarly article arguments to be made from from kind of a digital humanities method as well about how do you do data collection and not just trying to grab lots of stuff and put it online, but trying to contextualize that. So trying to take the the editorial expertise that somebody like Tim brings to the table from you know more than a decades worth of intensive analysis of this this material and trying to help
0: communicate that effectively. So, do you think this would be a, a tool that maybe the the layperson interested in apologetics might be able to use?
1: Definitely, uh, we definitely want to make sure one of our target audiences is making sure that the uh, the the intelligent non-specialist I think was the term that went into the grant documents, but somebody somebody who's really interested in learning more about this, uh, but doesn't necessarily have a background in philosophy or 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 history of science and issues like that can get in find the historical material find some of there's there's also a number of videos online as well as so videos from lectures videos from a class that tim taught um and get get a hook into the material get a kind of hook into the material and the context from the 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 essays and the videos and in the lectures, and they go read the primary source materials. And and I think with with um, it's really geared toward people who are kind of specifically interested and in, and want to do that. But it's definitely accessible
0: to to everyone. Speaking of people that are interested in apologetics, you've been very instrumental in these past few years here at the Texanum chapter of Asher Christie, particularly uh, with your connections specifically to Tim McGrew and uh, Father Pinson just for so people would like to know how exactly did you get involved with Rexter Christie I mean I know cuz I mean <laughs> cuz you sent it. the email all right, all right exactly all right so there was this email that
1: went out on the the Christian faculty network listserv um, which there is by the way there's there's a group here called the Christian faculty network that is really engaged and pretty active at Texas A&M um, and, and is a great group of folks, but they sent out this email saying, "Hey, there's this group called Rashi Christie, they do apologetics. Would you, would you like to get involved in? And, and I've, you know, it's, it's been a long time passion of mine just just pairing up the thought, thoughtful Christianity and, and a, a critical engagement with, with our faith and also thinking about how our faith intersects with the world around us. And so I said, you know, so kind so kind of, kind of I, I, I latched on and said, well. I'll be interested in, in, in and and talking to to you and Zach and the rest of the leadership team, and um, uh, you know I th- I think the way Ratio Christie, at least the way the Ratio the formal Ratio Christie, documents envision the the role of a, a chapter director is, is is quite a lot more than I was I was really able to sign on to, but but uh, mercifully I didn't really have to because I think the the leadership here. At Texas a is, is really fabulous. And so I basically I got to, to serve as a sounding board, hopefully a useful sounding board, and um, let y'all run the show, which, it, which has been great.
0: One of the really instrumental things that, that you helped to bring about, um, and something one of the passions you actually instilled in me, is the relevance that Christianity has with uh, race relations in, in the United States. Uh, and to be quite frank, I mean, I'm a white male that grew up in Texas, in a suburban area, typically with the, the traditional understanding that racism died in about 1985. But after meeting with you, it, it's been really instrumental for me personally to, to see this side of America that specifically as a white man, I've, I've never been able to see. Honestly, I really appreciate your, your passion to, to addressing these issues. And one other thing that one of the projects that you had Rachel Christie really take the lead on was bringing in George Yancey in uh, spring of 2016 to speak specifically on is there a Christian solution to racial problems? I, I can attest to myself at least that this has been very eye opening and and I would just like to know from your perspective what exactly drives your passion for, for race relations.
1: I, I come from a really similar background to you. I'm white male suburban. Um, one of the advantages of being a white male suburb from suburbia is, is that you know n- nobody ever hurls racial epithets at me. Mm-hmm. Um. So, so a lot of it was was kind of off in the background. But but looking around when when we were thinking about. Bringing in George Anthony was was kind of looking. It was uh, actually right after Ferguson, and I was kind of just wondering, you know what, what sort of things are going on in this country, and what sort of conversations are happening that are, are something that Christians ought to have a voice in, and and may and ought to be able to think about and discuss that are, that are a little bit more complex than i feel like a lot of the things we do as apologetics is. Sometimes it's preaching in the choir. Sometimes it's it's effectively solved problems, right? It's it's evident, you know, evidence for the historicity of the, the resurrection is—you can't call it solved. People are still talking about it, but the scope of that conversation is is known, and, and lots of people are having it. So this is just after Ferguson, and I'm thinking, what are what are some of the big problems and issues in our in our, in our nation? It's pretty easy to turn on the TV every, every night and and see see these things going on. So so it's fairly a uh, fairly obvious thing to be talking about but it's also a really complex topic so if you look at issues of race relations I- ignoring some of the noise that surrounds this, one of the things that's always stood out to me is just the the degree of disparate outcomes between people of the majority culture largely white but but not necessarily exclusively and and people of people of color so some minority groups and, and when you look at that in terms of, of just about any sort of metric that, that we can measure, you know, whether that be wealth, whether it be education, health, that there's this major disparity in the the outcomes for for the majority culture versus people of color and minorities. And you know, like you said, this this seems like a problem that as a nation we've wrestled with in dramatic ways for a really long time, but it, it's just not going away. And it seems to be a problem that. That this is something that the church, you know, just just trying to step back and look at it from an outside perspective. This is something that the church really ought to be a, a pioneer and a leader in, right? I mean, we 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 as Christians come to the foot of the cross with nothing, as as repentant sinners asking for forgiveness, and and their verses talking about there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We we all stand before the throne of God as saved under the blood of jesus christ this ought to be a common bond across the racial divisions in this nation and yet as as martin luther king said now gosh more years ago than 60 years ago i suspect sunday morning is still one of the most racially divided times in in the country that seems like just a a a a huge stain on america in general and, and the church in particular watch or read the news you hear about evangelicals all the time what they usually mean is is white middle-class evangelicals The fact of the matter is though though actually black americans are, are actually significantly more likely to be evangelicals or to identify with evangelical views than are white americans i think white evangelicals and black evangelicals ought to be getting together under their shared identity and shared values in christ and having conversations, and, and really serious and really hard conversations about the, all of the other issues that, that tend to divide us. But looking toward our identity at the cross of Christ, first and foremost. And, and I think the church is a natural setting for that to happen. I think the church should have a very strong and intrinsic motivation in making that happen, just in terms of promoting the unity of the body of Christ. I guess my my real passion here is saying, first of all, just recognizing that, that there's a problem. We spend a lot of time in this conversation trying to assign blame, cast dispersions on the other guy's solution because it won't work. And I guess I, w- where I'd really like to start off with is to, is to first just acknowledge that we have a problem and it's a real problem. The The causes of this are complex. The solutions to this are, are obviously very, very hard. But let's start off finding some common ground and saying, we've, we've got a problem, and let's have just honest conversations about how
0: we can move forward and disagree, but disagree amicably. You mentioned there uh, the very common passage from Galatians about, in Christ, there's neither male nor female, uh, Greek nor Jew, all are one in Christ. I think that that is probably the single most powerful theological tool and the most unique aspect that Christians in particular can bring, bring to this discussion. Uh, do you think that there are any other areas that Christians bring something very unique to this conversation? Christianity, if we just go back
1: to the gospel, right? The Christ- the gospel is, I have sinned, I need a so- savior, and the only hope for me is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I think that structure, frankly, is, is one of the things, the conversations that needs to be had in in race relations as well okay so i said i'm not going to assign blame here i am, I am going to assign blame because some of the blame is actually really really easy to assign there were a bunch of ships and we brought a bunch of people over to this country to be slaves there's been an incontroversial history of oppression right from from slavery to looking back at the 60s, 70s, thinking about redlining, where people in the black community were simply excluded from buying houses in specific areas and were excluded from getting access to loans. They kind of served to create systematic problems within culture, within wealth acquisition, everything else like that. So given given this history of really explicit oppression, there's nothing that, that white America can do to make up for the harms that have been caused. And one thing here is to to borrow the language of Christianity and say well, what's needed is, is repentance, right? And what, what's involved in repentance is a recognition and acknowledgement that you've done something wrong. And coming to the other person, right, in the case of Christianity that's, that's showing up before the throne of God and asking for forgiveness and receiving forgiveness, repentance, recognition of your wrong turning from that wrong, asking for forgiveness, and then this process of sanctification where you say, this isn't going to happen overnight, but how do I as a person, through the grace of God, change and become better and stop causing the harm that I have been causing in the past? So I think that's one resource that the church has. I think another theological resources this notion of corporate sin versus individual sin we we in, in Christianity often especially in the western world focus on individual sin and individual guilt you know in in the old testament in particular we see this notion of you know Isaiah when he encounters god says woe is me for i am a man of unclean lips and i'm from a people of unclean lips right so it's both this individual and corporate notion of sin i think being being more aware and being more willing to acknowledge our participation in corporate sins. Mo- moving away from the terminology of racism, but the racial tensions, the racialization, the differences of racial impact and effect are things that are that are really fundamentally woven into our society and are really hard to fix. We didn't get here
0: just because one guy went out and said, hey, I, I don't like black people. Uh, you've also mentioned that Christians need to be active and vocal in public life in general. Uh, one of the most interesting things that um, I heard from you, was how passionate you were about Christians being involved in foreign policy, which is something that I, I never really thought was was that much of a religious issue. So I'm curious, what what do you see as sort of the balance between this? How does a Christian properly bring their faith into public life, perhaps maybe interact a little bit with this unique American idea of the, you know, the separation of church and state? As Christians, presumably we believe Christianity is true, and we believe
1: that, it, that it's true in significant ways. And if Christianity is true, I, f- I feel like it's something that ought to be affecting how we see and understand the world. So there's a lot of talk about how, as, as Christians, we ought to live good, moral, abstaining lives. We ought to not bribe people. We ought to not do horribly unethical things and all of that. But I, but I feel like, you know, if, if Christianity is true, it, it probably ought to have a relevant voice in some of the most pressing problems that we have in, in the world around us. The flaw that evangelicals in particular have stumbled into is to kind of apply this naive, let's let's take the Bible and, and read it as if it were the Wall Street Journal and, and just try to apply it into public affairs of today. I think that's really the wrong approach. Right? The right approach is to think in, in really deep ways about the theological foundation that Scripture lays out and say, how does that relate to all of the stuff that's going on in the world around us, right? So you mentioned you mentioned foreign affairs. There's, there's a man who, unfortunately, his name his name I, I forget, right off the top of my head. He was a graduate of Wheaton College, served initially as a missionary in Thailand, and subsequently left the mission field, came back, and, and started getting engaged in political life. So he was initially working with the, the OSS in World War II to coordinate some of the U.S. resistance in Thailand and Southeast Asia to the Japanese. But then was also heavily influential and involved in the discussions leading into the Vietnam era. And one of his big conversations was you really have to understand the people of Southeast Asia as people. And you also have to understand the importance of religion and religious views in their lives. He stood out in particular as being an early opponent to the Vietnam War, trying to argue we can't just advance U.S. political interests. We also have to care and think deeply about the people and the cultures we're dealing with. I think, I think the wrong thing to do is to say, ah, as a Christian, I can resolve everything into this simple formulaic solution. But as a Christian, I ought to have thinking foreign policies I should have a, a view of the world that respects the the individual people as valuable human beings and see how should public policy relate and interact and engage with them. That's going to take very seriously their religious beliefs. There are a bunch of areas that I feel like Christianity ought to be speaking to in some really sophisticated ways, and I, and I feel like aren't, right? So we've already talked about race relations, most foreign policy, Urban planning, the way we design our cities has a, has a tremendous impact on how people live. Are we, are we really just maximizing land use and, and economic growth and economic value for people? Are we trying to create communities where lots of different people can live and where we're not just throwing out and destroying communities who lived there because we as, as developers come in and look at it and say, ah, I can increase economic value by just decimating this community that's lived here for three generations. I think economics is a really fascinating set of questions where all of your modern economies are based around a debt-heavy model. And yet Christianity and Islam both have been very hesitant to accept debt as a legitimate means of financing things, right? And I I don't mean to suggest that we go back to, to the days in which Christians said debt is completely illegitimate. But perhaps we ought to take a more careful look at some of the assumptions that have gone in our economy, and 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 think about what is the role that debt plays, and to what extent is debt an instrument of those who have money, kind of systematically marginalizing those who don't have have enough money to make ends meet. And are there alternative models that we can adopt to to reduce that impact and
0: that threat? A lot of people may be a little hesitant about this bringing Jesus to the public sphere because Americans have, I, I forgot what it was I, I think it's uh, Scopes Trial Antibodies, I think is the name <laughs> for it that that anytime you bring Jesus into the public sphere, everyone immediately just knee jerks and says, separation of church and state, keep your religion at home kind of a thing and even Christians will do that, and yeah. and, and even myself, I have like a, I guess like a an, an reflex anytime I hear a politician say something about uh, religion uh, so I'm, I'm curious what what do you think might be a a balance for a christian who's in public life
1: yeah well so scopes trial antibodies i think is a, is a fantastic way to to talk about that so, so one of the digital projects i've been on has looked a little bit at the the history of the fundamentalist movement and one the scopes trial is a particularly interesting turning point because it was at the Scopes trial where, where you had there, there's this interesting transition in which the fundamentalist movement has always been kind of Augmented toward popular, accessible arguments for Christianity. You know, the, the Scopes trying you move from having these these kind of arguments take place in long form, long form articles, and and more academic treatment of the subject to arguing issues in the newspapers and in headlines, right? And, and you see the the cultural war of the '80s kind of picking up on some of those strategies, rhetorically simple, polarizing approach to Reasoning about things, um, Christian, um, the United States has been, I think, one of our great um, values as a country is is the ability of religious freedom and, and and this encouragement that we're not going to enshrine a particular religious viewpoint as the party line within the United States and something that everybody has to has to adhere to, right? Um, but there's, there's, a, there's a difference between saying we're not going to enshrine a particular viewpoint, religious viewpoint, and saying that religious viewpoints should not be considered and should not be something that we can bring in. And, and the fact of the matter is, I don't think we can avoid bringing in a religious viewpoint. Secularism is itself a religious viewpoint. And so if you, if you look at, at France... Uh, France has gone a long way to marginalize in their case at the moment it's 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 their Muslim communities to say that their Muslim communities don't have much of a voice in the public sphere because they're not willing to to divorce the fundamental things that they believe about the world or the ways in which they choose to con- conduct themselves from their from their public life so this notion that in everybody should be secular and everybody should in should avoid bringing their deeply held views of what the world is, which which fundamentally is is what a religious viewpoint is, into their approach to solving problems is, is, I think, problematic. Um, So I think Christians ought to have viewpoints and perspectives that are informed by their faith. And they ought to bring this, in some cases, very forcefully into their discussions of public policy. Now, they need to be having those conversations in ways that don't just shut out other voices and other perspectives. They need to be making their arguments in ways that are accessible to everyone and, and to all of the different viewpoints. And in this in this case, I think, right, the, the growing demographic trend in the United States is for religious non-affiliation is, is rising. And I, in some sense, that's a helpful thing because uh, Christians can't just assume that we're in the majority and we can kind of rule from a a state of this is the Christian way and this is the way it's going to be done. An example of of a place where I think Christians should have been a lot more vocal and should have been listened to, frankly, is the eugenics programs of the early 20s, 30s, and 40s, right, where the secular notion, the scientific notion was that we want to we want to perfect the human race by marginalizing those who who are less pure, right? This is obvious, of course, in in Hitler's Germany. I I, I apologize for having the conversation to send to Hitler. Um, <laughs> that so there's a book out recently called "Imbeciles" that I haven't read, but but really want to that, that's talking about the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes and some of his decisions, and in particular with sterilizing the mentally retarded and and some of the the actions that were taken for cognitive differences between people. That was a major characteristic of American society, and I I think that the church to some extent probably did, but probably should have done done more so, is to step up and say, no, people are all created in the image of God, and we can't just dismiss some people as being less useful to society and carry on programs of forced sterilization and, and so forth.
0: So, Neil, we've talked about a lot today. We've talked about Texas a Digital Humanities, a Special Divine Action Program, as well as uh, race relations in the United States, and uh, what Christians can do in public life. But all of our interviews on Think Theism end at the same place, and it's on a deserted island. So, Neil, if you're on a deserted island, you only get to have a single element from the periodic table with you. Which one would you take with you and why? Okay, so
1: you may have a much better knowledge of the, the periodic table than I do. If I recall, osseum is, is like the densest yeah. material yes, out right. there. I just always thought that would be cool, and apparently it's hard to come by. So so if you're going to stick me on a desert island and I get to pick anything, <laughs> I'm going to go with that one just because it's the densest. Uh, I was, I was toyed around with helium at one point, but you said somebody else had already suggested so that they could make a hot air balloon and float mm-hmm. off the island. I was going to use it for a completely different... I was just going to... Suck it down and keep myself entertained by by um, giving speeches for some sort with, with
0: helium. Speeches to the, the indigenous... Speeches, speeches to the indigenous pigeons or whatever <laughs> I have on my island. We haven't decided if our deserted island has cannibals on it yet, so... If it has cannibals on it, it's not deserted. That's true. Good, good point. Well, is it deserted until you observe another person? Or if you never see another person, is it still actually... I kind of had this vision of like a far-side deserted island where it's like you and a palm tree. and It's, it's, <laughs> it's like 10 like, square
1: feet. Yeah, basically.
0: Sunil, uh, so I hear you're, you're leaving A&M after 50 years here. <laughs> Not quite 50, okay. but, but close enough. Sometimes it
1: seems like that. All of my adult life, effectively, yeah. I see. So where are you headed off to then? So I'm headed off to, to California, to, to the Bay area. Go join the, the commune of computer scientists that all hang out out there.
0: Commune may be a little more literal
1: than... It, it may be a little bit more literal. <laughs> I see. Housing, housing prices kind of encourage the
0: commune <laughs> lifestyle. Uh, where could people find you? You got a website, blog, GeoCities? Uh, no, shut down the GeoCities account. Uh, there's, there's
1: a website that is odinart.org, a u-d-e-n-a-e-r-t.org. You know, Facebook is this wonderful device. You can search in Facebook, and you can find me there. All right, cool. Well, uh, Neil, it's been great talking with you. And-